As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This is the word of the Lord. For sure, uh, Spring Forward Sunday balances out the attendance at the services. Welcome to Second Service. Those of you that slept in, I'm glad you enjoyed the grace of the Lord and are here for Second Service. Well, I want to um, say, Christopher and Iris, I am so grateful that we get to partner with you. Um, I have the, the privilege, my nine to five, uh, I get to spend on global missions and seek, I get a front row seat to be able to say that who they are and what they're doing is so strategic right now. It is an amazing opportunity that God has laid before them, that God custom made you for, and thank you for the privilege of being a part of God's love getting to those that haven't yet heard it. Really, really grateful. Uh, men that were at the breakfast yesterday, Pastor Kelly totally teed the ball up for what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, as I was sitting there, I'm like, wow, he's like preaching my sermon for me. This is great. So uh, there are some nuances, but uh, he did such a great job of prepping our hearts for where we're headed today. A few weeks ago when Tommy asked me if I would preach today and he told me the passage, I read it and I thought, whoa, wow, I've got some work to do. This is going to be an interesting one. Um, and it has been interesting. I, I will say that as I've studied um, and God has been gracious to, to guide me through, um, we're going somewhere I did not originally expect. Um, and so, so we can buckle in and, and start that road together. Uh, but first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious to us. Thank you for the privilege of being in public and proclaiming our allegiance to you and you alone. Thank you for your spirit within us that transforms us. And I ask that you would use your word in us, your people, to accomplish what you intend for your glory and honor. In your name we pray. Amen. As my first point is called Success Defined. It's just our first couple verses. But as we get going, let's check in on our context. That's always helpful, especially with narratives. Um, and here, Jesus is still interacting with the crowd that he was talking to in last week's sermon. 
So this is the crowd that asked him for a sign from heaven, the sign that watched him drive a demon out, and then promptly questioned whether that was God's work or Satan's work. The crowd that Jesus chastised for their unbelief, that is who is with us today, or who we are with, I should say. And among that crowd, you would have had the, those that were on the margins of society for a variety of reasons. You would have had every, average, everyday Jews that went to the Sabbath, went to the synagogue every Sabbath, and went to the temple when they could. And you would have had the religious elites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers that really knew their Bible and kept beyond the Bible. Um, and among that crowd... There is a woman who, in what Jesus just did with the casting out of the demon and his response to the the questioning, she sees something extraordinary. She sees something of God, and she says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. I have not heard that anywhere else but here. It's kind of an odd expression, I thought. It's one of those that if, let's say, a Hall of Fame inductment ceremony, somebody stood up and speaking of the athlete, he said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Like, that'd be all over YouTube and TikTok. That, that would go viral. That's not how we say it. That is not a common expression for us. I thought it was weird, but I wasn't sure if it was weird just because I'm a guy. So I asked some women in my life. They all affirmed it's pretty weird. It's like we all understand what's being communicated, but it is just not how we would say it. We're bumping into an area here where there's just considerable cultural distance between this moment in the Bible and this moment that we live in. When Jesus was born during that era, there was an extreme amount of anticipation for the arrival of the Messiah this leader from God who would rescue the world, or as Israel at the time liked to think about, that would rescue them from their Gentile Roman oppressors. This kind of fever pitch of of anticipation. And you mix that with the very, very limited ways that the patriarchal society of the day allowed for women to participate in God's redemptive plan. Um, And you find yourself in a setting where for many women, being mom to the Messiah was their highest ambition. The culture envisioned, it, it imagined women's primary contribution to God's redemptive plan was to have children within the bounds of Israel and keep Israel going. And maybe one day, one of them would get to be mom to the Messiah. Look at what the woman says. It, it's interesting that it isn't even about Mary's personhood as a woman. It's about her role in procreation. Motherhood is amazing. Motherhood is amazing. I marvel watching Sarah be a mom. So grateful for my mom. We have have so many amazing mothers in our church. It's an amazing gift to get to be a mom. And I am so grateful that we live in a moment where there are more options for women to participate in God's redemptive plan. You don't have to be a mom. You can contribute in so many meaningful ways wherever you're at in life. I'm really grateful that both of those are true. But in our passage here, we find this woman living in a world in which being mother to the Messiah was many young girls' highest ambition. We don't know if she recognized Jesus as the Messiah, but we do know that she is recognizing something special about Jesus. She has seen Jesus is connected to God and what God is doing. And so she cries out, 
in what would have been a common phrase then, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Your mom is blessed. She's arrived. And Jesus doesn't reject that statement. He doesn't correct it. He counters it, though. And he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And then Luke records a slight break in the action. And and I think it's because he's allowing Jesus' words to be a little bit of a mic drop moment. And he just creates a pause. Jesus says this amazing thing, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And maybe he turns around and keeps walking. And the crowd that is there kind of starts following him and they're pondering what he just said and a little buzz happens and some more people gather in. And that brings us to our our second point in verses 29 through 32, response required. And here's what it says. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. There's a sharpness to Jesus' words here, right? He calls this generation evil. He tells them why, too. Right, right on the heels of saying that true blessedness is hearing the word of God and keeping it, Jesus chooses to draw on two famous Old Testament preachers, Jonah and Solomon. Now, as an aside, we often don't think of Solomon as a preacher. He wrote pithy little statements that we have captured in Proverbs. But his contemporaries... Considered him a preacher. So a preacher he is. So Jonah and Solomon preach. And people repent. And and that, Jesus says, is the only sign that this evil generation is going to get from heaven. So let's real quick brush up on these two stories from Jonah and Solomon. But first I'll just say, that Jesus here is responding to the crowd's earlier request for a sign from heaven. He delayed that answer to right now. So these two preachers, Jonah and Solomon. Jonah, I generously call him the pouting prophet. He was so unhappy that God would extend mercy to people he didn't think deserved it, that he preferred to die. Like, just think about that for a minute. He was so unhappy the people he didn't like, that he didn't think deserved mercy, were going to receive mercy from God, that he preferred to die. Twice. Twice. Somehow, we pull Sunday school lessons out of that. I don't know how that happens. It's hard to call what we have that Jonah did preaching. In in the book of Jonah, his sermon is, is captured, and this is what he said. He walked around Nineveh, this is all that's captured. We don't know if he said more or less, or more or more or not, but this is what's captured for us. For three days he walked around Nineveh saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That, that's it. That's the sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh 
shall be overthrown. And God used that in such a way that the entire city repented. Literally from the cows to the king, everybody repented. Listen to the words of the king of Nineveh. It says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that are in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger, anger so that we may not perish. From the cows to the king, everyone repented. And the queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, scholars think she's either from the Arabian Peninsula or from around what we now know as Ethiopia. Either way, news of Solomon's God-given wisdom had traveled very far. And she heard it, and it compelled her to come investigate whether it was true or not. The report, and this is what she says, the report was true that I heard in my own lands of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes have seen it. She heard stories that demanded she investigate, and she found the truth when she did. Both of these, the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba, heard the word of God, believed, and in ways that we don't fully understand, aligned their lives with it. Both heard the word of God and kept it. Jesus would say they are both blessed. And that's who's going to rise up and condemn the generation that he is in front of. The Jews knew their history. And the Jewish history of full of preachers and prophets preaching to Israelites who repent and believe and adjust their lives to align them with what God has said. Why did Jesus pick stories of a, a Gentile city and, and gasp a Gentile woman to lift up as those who heard and kept the word of God? Why would Jesus do that? Why a Gentile woman and Gentile men in the city of Nineveh, why will they rise up and condemn this generation that Jesus is speaking to? Why did Jesus say, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it and mic drop and just let that hang and then pick the dialogue back up with these two stories? Jesus is pushing for something from his, his listeners and he's poking at something in them. He's pushing for a response. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there were crowds just like this one, full of very curious people that followed Jesus around and observed and decided how they wanted to respond. The Gospels are full of the stories of those crowds. I think the average Jews in this crowd probably would have thought, you know, I hear the word of God every Sabbath. I do my best to keep it. I'm an Israelite, I would say I'm, a, I'm among the blessed that Jesus is talking about. And the Pharisees that were in the crowd, we know there's Pharisees, by the way, because Jesus is about to have breakfast or a meal, with, lunch with one of them. The Pharisees would have said, Psh, not only have I heard the word of God, I memorized it. Not only have I kept it, I built up all these rules around it so I don't get anywhere near close to breaking it. I am a Jew of the Jews, of of course, I'm among the blessed that Jesus is talking about. But Jesus is also poking at a historic problem that Israel had. And that was the problem of 
embracing the fact that God's love was not limited to them. From the earliest times of God's redemptive history, it has been so clear that his love is for his world. All of it. And Israel was selected to be the vehicle to get that message out. But historically, time and time and time again, they brought their eyes in and they made themselves the center of the story. They made God's redemptive plan about them and not about those outsiders. And I think by picking Jonah and Solomon, by picking the Ninevites and the Queen of the South, God is poking at this historic problem and putting it in front of them. And he's not going to let them off the hook. So Jesus is pushing the crowd to a response. He's poking at their historic selfishness with God's love, which if I'm honest is totally something I can identify with. And then in the next section of the passage, Jesus brings those two together and shows the right response that he wants from them and that he wants from us. So let's turn to the last section of the passage, the third point, the right response. And read verses 33 through 36 with me. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. I think since that's crystal clear, we'll just close in prayer. Thank you for coming. This is a part that um, was very gradually making sense to me as I meditated and studied over the last uh, couple weeks. But what Jesus is saying comes together here really powerfully. He uses two images, a lamp and a light. And he combines them to show the right response to who he is. Or we could say that he combines those two to show what keeping the word of God actually looks like. I think the lamp idea makes sense, right? No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, put on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. None of us plug a lamp into a long extension cord and then proceed to put it in a closet and close the door. Like, that's just not how lights work. We place them where they're going to illuminate the way for us. In Jesus' day, the, that, that was oil lamps, and the, uh, your, your wealth situation determined how many oil lamps you could have running at a time. So you might have just one for your whole house, or you might get to have many. That was an image. They, they understood that reality. A lamp is a source of light. We understand that. They understood that. For kind of the data point that we need to grab onto here as we move forward is that the lamp is a source. Okay, just remember that. A lamp is a source. There's also talk of the eye. Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Jesus didn't have to explain that to his hearers because they understood what he's talking about. In ancient Mideastern cultures, I think in current ones, in modern ones as well, the eye is both a path for input and for output. 
We take in through the eye, we express through the eye. The eye is extremely interpersonal. They understand that. And, and so that's why the, the image is used. I remember when the movie Polar Express came out in 2004. Um, it was all a computer animated movie and the graphics were extremely realistic and advanced for the day. And people went to the movie to watch this, this CGI and came away kind of disgusted because it was both extremely realistic and so odd because the animators got the eyes wrong. And so it was like a movie full of zombies. It was really weird. The eyes are so expressive, so interpersonal. I realized during the, the mask part of the pandemic, you couldn't see half a person's face, but you could still see how they were doing because you could see their eyes. The eyes are so expressive. They are a means of input and of output. The lamp is the source, and Jesus is making the point that within us, we can have a light source or a dark source. But whatever is in us is going to make its way out through our eyes. Okay, So Jesus here is turning the corner. He's pushing these Israelites, the Jews, the Pharisees, from thinking about keeping God's words as what they do to something much, much deeper. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. What's coming out of us? Is it healthy? Is it light? Is it dark? What story do our eyes tell about what's happening within us? They don't lie. We can lie with the bottom half of our face much better than we can lie with the upper part. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The lamp within, the source within us, can be bad leading to darkness, or it can be healthy leading to light. Jesus goes here because he cares so deeply about what's within us. We can look so tidy on the outside and be full of darkness on the inside. Jesus isn't after that tidy life. He's after a light, healthy, interior life. The life of our soul is what matters to him. The if you, when you read Acts next time, I encourage you to watch this. The apostles, every time they share the gospel, the Holy Spirit is part of it. They never leave the Holy Spirit out of the gospel. They tried following Jesus without the indwelling Holy Spirit. They knew what that was like. And then they got to experience following Jesus with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And they never forgot the Holy Spirit after that. The fact that God comes to literally dwell within us when he redeems us is such a gift. We don't have to try to sort out our inner life on our own. God is here. Look at verse 35 again. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Be careful what's inside us. 
what's coming out from within us. Jesus is pushing us to think about that. It's really interesting that at the start of our passage, Jesus defines blessing, or as I termed it, success, as hearing and keeping the word of God. And then this is where he drives to. This is his conclusion. Beware of the source within you. Beware the life of your soul because it will be reflected in what comes out. It will be reflected in what comes out. I think the crowd that Jesus was talking to would have largely equated keeping the word of God with the things that they did or didn't do. I think you and I can relate to keeping the word of God as mostly about being about things that we do and don't do. But Jesus brings the issue down to the life of our soul and to what makes its way out of us through our eyes. Let's bring all of this together. Quick review. First, Jesus' concern is for people to keep the word of God. Obviously, that requires that they hear it first, but his concern is for people to keep the word of God. Second, God always intended for his word to reach the outsiders. That's why he uses the Ninevites and the Queen of the South as the illustrations for that generation. God always intended for his love to make it beyond us. Always. It's also a shocker for for his first crowd to think that Gentiles and the Queen of the South would be able to keep God's word. That is something they could do as Israelites with the law. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. They did it too. That's a shocker to them. Third, keeping the word of God is a matter of the life of the soul, of our heart. It's not just our actions. Keeping the word of God is an inner being issue, but it is expressed to and experienced by those around us. Communal cultures like this one very clearly understand, I think better than individualistic cultures like ours, they understand that the state of one's soul impacts those around them. And I think Jesus is pointing us to this reality that who we are on the inside deeply impacts those around us. So where does this leave us? I think this is where Pastor Kelly yesterday for the, uh, primed the pump for those of us at the, prayer breakfast, at the breakfast so, so well when he pointed us to, to two passages. One of those is Matthew uh, 22, 37 through 40, where we have this exchange between uh, an observer and Jesus. He says, teacher, what is the great, command, the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. And the second verse Pastor Kelly pointed us to is 1 John 4.10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus summarizes the entire word of God up till that moment that he is speaking with two points. Love God with all that you are 
and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. That's the summary of the entire Old Testament. And that's in Jesus' words, so we can trust it. But then, when we bring in what, what John has to say, we find that, that love is defined first and foremost, not by our love for God, but by God's love for us. Listen again. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's redeeming love defines love for us. I think what Jesus is getting at is that our innards, our souls, need to be so consumed, so shaped by his love that it makes its way out of us. I think it is very easy for us to look for, and I'm, I am speaking from my own heart and experience. I look for transformation based on what people are doing. Can, can I see? Are they, are they moving into my box? If so, they're properly transformed. And I think that my transformation can come through doing all the right stuff. And Jesus says, no. Transformation, the deepest, most powerful transformation is being consumed by the love of God. That will transform us more than anything we can possibly do. Our souls should be consumed and shaped by God's love for us, our love for him, and our love for those around us. When that defines us, then our light is healthy and our eyes are full of light. I want to leave you with a few practical tips and encouragements. First, spend more time simply enjoying God's love. Spend more time simply enjoying God's love. It's not selfish. It's not wrong. I love it when my girls want to cuddle up and just sit in my love. And if, if I, who am a mediocre dad at best, love that, imagine how our Heavenly Father feels when we say, God, can you help me know your love? I just want to be with you. He doesn't say, stay away, I'm busy. That's a special moment. Slow down. Take time this week, ask God to help you know and experience his love. It's not selfish. In Psalm 139, we see God custom making, hand knitting us together in our mother's womb. And I promise that the creator of the universe didn't make somebody he's not wild about. In Ephesians 2.10, we hear, we see that, that before God flipped on the sun, he designed good works for you to walk in. Good for you to bring to his world. And he custom made you to do that. He delights in you. God loves you. Enjoy that. Sit in it. Be transformed by it. 
And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Second, watch for God's transforming love to grow your heart for those around you, especially for those that do life different from you, that have different values than you do, that have different news sources than you do, that have different sense of what thriving is. God loves those that are far off from us. And as his love transforms us, expect and watch for and nurture your love for them to grow. I think the reason that Jesus chose the Ninevites and the Queen of the Sheba as the signs is that the crowd he was talking to were good, you know, Bible-believing Jews, and they would have rejected the Ninevites and the Queen of the South. They would have said they have no part in what God's doing. They're too far gone. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. They have always been at the core of what God is doing. God's love isn't a zero-sum game. There's not a limited amount. It is as infinite as he is. And so you can bask in his love, be transformed by his love, and share his love with no risk of ever running out of God's love. And then last, and this is a tall order, and, and I, um, I don't do any of what I'm talking about perfectly. None of us do. And this is why I'm ending with this encouragement is that our hope is not that we're going to do any of this perfectly. Our hope is not that I will love God properly, that I will enjoy his love, that I will love people around me. My hope is not in any of that. Our hope can't be. I know myself too well. I know some of you pretty well. We can't hope in this. Our hope has to be in Jesus. And the good news is that he did, in fact, bask in God's love for him. He did, in fact, love those around him, those near and those far. He, he took God's love to those far off, to us, perfectly. And so our confidence, our hope isn't in our performance. It's in the fact that Jesus already got it right. And our confidence is that when Jesus died to pay for our sin and our sinfulness, he cried out, it is finished. And he meant it. It is finished. Listen to how Paul applies that in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being called, killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The people are saying, God, we're dying here. Have you removed your love? Have we lost your love? And Paul goes on. He says, no. In all of these things, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are so beloved by God, nothing can separate that. And he loves the world that he takes us to every day so much. As we are transformed by God's love, we get to express that love to the world that he loves and is in the process of redeeming. Let's pray. I don't know what to say, Lord, but thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for not letting my and our selfishness and sinfulness and even running away from you stop your love. Thank you for the image of the prodigal son and the father that runs, runs to the one coming out of sin and rebellion and shame. Thank you for your love. I pray that you would deeply transform us, make us a people shaped by your love that are eager and willing and able to express it to the world around us that you love so much. Amen.